Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 17th, we are studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We'll take a look at some of the historical context and the epistle as a whole, as well as dig into the specifics of the thanksgiving and prayers that St. Paul offers for these Thessalonian Christians. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word this morning, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves as the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the first verse of Second Thessalonians, and I think that'll provide us the opportunity to talk a little bit about who these authors are, who the Thessalonians are, and the letter as a whole. So Second Thessalonians 1, verse 1 states, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how Paul, well, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy open the letter. Give us some background information on those three men, their relationship with the Thessalonian church, what we see about it in the book of Acts. Help just give us an introduction to this letter as a whole. Sure. So this is not a foreign greeting at all. In fact, the letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians begins much in the same way. And um, Silvanus is, of course, just Silas. So we've got Paul, Silas, and Timothy going about traveling in Paul's seminary journey. Uh, you can read about this just after the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Chapters 16 through 18 sort of provide this backdrop for us in the book of Acts of all the things that are going on in their travels, Paul, um, Silas, and Timothy. And where they are in, in Thessalonica is actually in, in Greece. They've been traveling throughout that area Corinth and Thessalonica, all those different Greece areas. And to give you some bit of bearings, geographically speaking, Thessalonica is about 300 miles to the northwest of the great city of Athens. So if that gives you some idea of where we're talking about there. And this is a letter that is supposedly written by the Apostle Paul. And I say supposedly because there's some dispute among biblical scholars concerning the authenticity of the letter, uh, specifically just the authorship, who wrote this book. And the tenor of this criticism, uh, the reason that Paul is not always the champion person for this, is kind of twofold on this one. First and foremost, there's the issue of forgery that you run into chapter 2, verse 2. There are apparently some people who are in Thessalonica, they are speaking, and they have in their possession letters that they are passing off as Paul and his colleagues' letters. And so we see this um, untrustworthiness going on, this forgery, this impostorship, all these different things going on. So that's number one. So the idea then behind all of that is if those things are going on, how do we actually know that Second Thessalonians is written by Paul? The second one's a bit more poignant, though, in terms of the criticism, and it is regarding a, a nuanced difference between First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians regarding the coming day and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the end of First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says that no one knows that Christ is going to return. But now in Second Thessalonians, Paul is going to speak of specifically in chapter 2, signs, uh, specifically apostasy, exaltation of the lawless one, which um, the early church father Irenaeus asserts is like the spirit of the Antichrist, uh, and all of these different things serve as indicators that you're in the end times. And scholars look at this and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, back it up here, which is it? Uh, is it that you don't know the day or the hour, or is it that there are signs and that there are seasons? Well, Chapter 317 gives us a good indicator. Paul says in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. 
it is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So there's that. But then there's also a whole handful of early church fathers ranging from 70 AD to 220 AD who, who grant some sort of authenticity to this letter. You got Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all of these claim Paul's authorship and confirm him. And what you see about the discrepancy then, the issue of discrepancy between First and Second Thessalonians, you actually see Jesus bo- speak both these ways in Matthew chapter 24 when he's talking about the end times. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 13, Jesus says, there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and nation will rise against nation, right? All these signs are going on. But yet then at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, no one knows that day or the hour. So these aren't really contradictory, but rather they're, they're complementary. That is to say this, you'll be able to look around, dear Christian, and know that the end is coming. But knowing not the end is coming is not the same as knowing the precise day and hour of our Lord's return. Mm-hmm. All that Pastor Apple is just to say St. Paul wrote the letter, right? <laughs> and St. Paul wrote right around, we would think, on my best guess, 51 to 52 AD, about maybe three months to a year after his first letter to the Thessalonians. My guess is he wrote this um, during the period of Acts chapter 18 here on this one. He's in the second uh, journey, missionary journey, 18 months in Corinth. He spent some time, and there is my guess, actually, that he wrote this, and uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they had already made that journey in Acts chapter 16, and then during that journey, it set the stage for the first letter. When they came to Thessalonica, they preached the gospel, and many Jews, many Greeks, many prominent women heard and were persuaded by this gospel. But then there were others who heard it, and, and they became jealous. The Jews who heard it became jealous, and they didn't want to hear anymore, and they found some shady characters, and they used them to incite a riot, and they went searching for Paul to bring him out publicly and to bring him up on false charges. There it's recorded in Acts 17, for you can read it there. But the charges are basically that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king named Jesus. The, they, at best, what they want to do is imprison him, or kick them out of the city. At worst, they want to kill them. So that's sort of the context where we find First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. That's what's going on there in Thessalonica. Right? Christians are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel by their own countrymen. And now having had that in the first letter, there is a misunderstanding about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ that has arisen because of those false prophets who are saying that the last day has already come, right? It comes like a thief in a knife. Well, guess what? You missed it. It's already here. And so there's confusion in these young Christians who are actually quite young in the faith. Um, did we miss the day of the Lord? Like, what's going on here? What's the, what's the final day of the Lord supposed to look like? And then finally, Second Thessalonians, you get these Christians who are quite honestly neglectful of their daily responsibilities and vocations. They'd rather be meddling in everybody else's business, gossiping them, slandering them. So all that causes St. Paul to write Second Thessalonians and give them three words. First, a word of comfort in the midst of suffering and persecution and affliction. That's chapter one. Second, a word of correction concerning the coming day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end of chapter one into chapter two. And third, a word of admonition concerning their idleness or busybodiness. I was really hoping chapter three was also going to start with a C, Pastor Philippek. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's okay. It's all right. If you want to, if you want a bunch of C's, you should listen to Concord Matters. They got like a cohort of Christ confessing Concordians, I think there. So great, great stuff. Great stuff, Pastor Philippek. That's a, a, an excellent historical rundown. It, it sounds like much of the historical context that we had for the first letter to the Thessalonians carries over into this one. And and we don't necessarily know exactly when it was written, but it's probably, like you said, not very long after that first epistle was. It got sent to the church there. Paul got some kind of word back from them, how it was received, maybe some more questions that they had, some issues that they were having, and now he's writing 2 Thessalonians in response. So very, very similar historical setting. Lots of overlap in terms of the themes that we'll we'll see as we go through this epistle, which is why we're reading them one right after the other. They really do flow nicely together. So with that, 
let's go ahead and take a look at the text we've got before us today. First, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ." That is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, the text we are studying this morning. So, Pastor Philippek, we, we looked at the opening of the letter. Paul opens it, as you said, very similarly to the way he opens 1 Thessalonians and many of his letters. He, he speaks grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are words we often skip over. Feel free to, to take a stab at them if you want and talk a little bit about them. But then again, as he continues, we get this Thanksgiving, again, another familiar part of Paul's letters. Sounds very similar, again, to what, what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians. He was very, uh, he, he commended them highly for their faith and love. And he does so, again, maybe even a bit stronger. He talks about boasting about these Thessalonians before other churches. What's going on in these opening verses here, Pastor Philippeck? Yeah, so that First couple of verses there does very much mimic First Thessalonians, and then we get into this weird business about boasting or holding them up before the other churches. The, you know, their steadfastness and faith for the persecutions and afflictions. So, what is essentially meant by this then is that Paul is holding up these young Christians in the faith as examples for how a Christian should look at and endure the afflictions and sufferings and persecutions laid upon them for the sake of the gospel. I think we need that, even in our day and age, because we are afflicted with all kinds of things. And in the United States, it might not be the same persecution as it was in the early church, whether you can actually hold church or not, or whether you'll be imprisoned or burned alive by the government, not that kind of persecution. There are all kinds of afflictions. There's a myriad of afflictions, quite frankly, that plague us, that weigh us down from illness, cancer, suffering, pain, death, the loss of loved ones, death. I mean, there's, there's lots that afflict us here. And while that's not exactly synonymous with what's going on here, still there's quite a bit of overlap of how do you deal with those issues when suffering, sin, uh, or suffering, afflictions, and persecutions are laid upon you. And quite frankly, Pastor Apple, there are really only two responses that are ever given or can be given. The first one is to hear the word of the Lord, and like the Thessalonians who went after God, uh, God, Paul, and, and Timothy, and began to persecute them, it is a rejection of his word. It is to hear those, that word and then to reject it, to abandon the promises of God entirely. Now, it could be that that automatically happens, or it could be that over, over time, you're just faced with so much that you begin to wonder or worry or doubt, you know, does the Lord even love me? Does he care about me? Is, is he even there? And the conclusion that you reach in the midst of all of this suffering, then, is 
I guess God is not real. He doesn't exist, or this Jesus isn't who he says he is. God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. I mean, there's there's so much myriad responses that, that are a little nuanced, but they all boil down to the rejection of his word. And Psalm 41 verse, or Psalm 14 verse 1 calls that uh, a foolish response. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's the first response. But the second response is to actually, in the midst of suffering, cling to the promises of God. You see this all over the scripture, and sometimes we're not real pious when it comes to these sorts of things and these conversations with God. But I want to, for a moment, just bring up one of, one of the lament psalms, because th- this deals with it all over the place. But some of the psalms give voice to these sorts of things that are going on in the Thessalonica church or the Corinth church, any one of these sorts of things. So Psalm 77, um, it's called a lament psalm because it starts out by, by just doing that, by weeping and lamenting. I mean, listen to some of the words. I cry aloud to God. Aloud I cry, and he will hear me. In my day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In my night, I stretch out my hand without wearying. My soul refuses that. He refuses to be comfort, comforted. When I remember God, I moan. My spirit faints. I hold my eyelids open. I cannot speak. I remember the songs of the night. I meditate and I search diligently. But will the Lord spurn me forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Has his promises ended for all time? Has his anger shut up his compassion? That's the first half of this psalm. It's all about facing the sorrows and sufferings of this life. And the psalmist is crying out to God and he can't take it. But then you'll notice the turn, that that suffering is not used for rejection of the Lord. The psalmist laments. He cries out to God, sort of like, where are you? I moan to you, and you don't answer me. Will you spurn me forever? But then the turn in the psalm is made toward a fervent cling to the promises of God. And that's what we call, in this chapter of Thessalonians, growing in faith, clinging fervently to the promises of God. The psalmist here writes, then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will remember your works. I will remember your wives, your, your mighty deeds and your works. I will remember your holy ways. I mean, he goes all of this from like a, a, a wondering and a Lord, where are you in this? And that holy lament is moved into a holy joy and a fervent clinging to the mighty work of God. It's just to say, no, God, you have not abandoned me. You have not forsaken me. You have engraved me on the palms of your very hands. You have written my name in blood there upon the cross. I will trust in you and you alone. Right? Romans 8 gives a similar response. I am convinced, right, that nothing, that angels, not demons, not height, not de- nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But that's the question in Romans. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall persecution and the sword and nakedness and famine? And Paul says, no, we are more than conquerors in all of these things. So that's kind of the first part of Thessalonians. He's holding them up there to say, look, at how your brothers are faced with suffering and what they do with it. Do they abandon the promises of God? No, they remember the good deeds of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he loved them, even death upon the cross, and they remain steadfast and firm, looking to him and him alone. And if anyone should be able to hold up the Thessalonians as examples of steadfast faithfulness in the midst of persecution, it is Paul. He knows persecution from both angles, doesn't he? He is the one who persecuted the church, pre-conversion, even having the coats of those who stoned Stephen laid at his feet in Acts chapter 7. But then post-conversion, after baptism, and he goes out preaching, you'll notice that he himself undergoes the same persecution. 2 Corinthians talks about it in chapter 11, that Paul has actually received 40 lashes for preaching the gospel, and this happens five times. He's beaten with a rod, three times. He's stoned and left for dead so that the birds may feed on his flesh. He's shipwrecked three times, hungered, thirsted, threatened, and endangered by bandits and Jews and Gentiles and false prophets and pressures around by all the churches. He's even imprisoned. So Paul's no stranger to persecution. And what does he say when he is persecuted and afflicted? Does he say the cute little 21st century, century American platitude that is not scriptural and somehow has become part of our language? God won't give me more than I can bear. I just wish he wouldn't trust me so much. No. We Christians sometimes say that, but that verse isn't even in the Bible. 
There's one that's similar to it. First Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that will not, that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not tempt, notice the word, he will not tempt you beyond your ability. But with this temptation, he will provide a way of escape. But that's about God not allowing you to be tempted. That's about temptation, not affliction. And even there, God's going to provide a way out. It's his doing. It's his work. So Paul doesn't even utter this, this nonsense of, uh, I'm strong enough. I'm, I'm able to fix the situation. I'm able to overcome this. Um, I'm, I'm so trustworthy. God lays upon me this much affliction. Actually, the words of Paul are quite the opposite. When Paul faces deep sorrow, he doesn't look to his own strength. He doesn't look to how much he can bear, how much God trusts him. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 are actually this in the midst of suffering. For I do not want you to be unaware, brother, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened, get this, beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And then he goes to the words of Thessalonians. He goes to the heart of what he's saying to the Thessalonians. But all of that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises from the dead. And then Pastor Apple, my favorite part of that letter of 2 Corinthians, he utters the most profound words I've ever heard a Christian say. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with this that the Lord should, that it should leave me, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. The power of Christ may rest upon me. And here's the beautiful words. For Christ's sake, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, as Christians, we hear those words, I am content. And as 21st century Americans, the word content seems to be synonymous in our minds with the word happy. I try plugging that in to what Paul's saying. I'm happy with weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I love it. No, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Paul's not happy these things are going on. He's pleaded to the Lord that this leads him, that this should leave him. But the Lord's answer is this. When you are weak, then you are the strongest because you are dependent upon me and me alone. You recognize that you can't do it. You can't fix your life. If you can't make it better, you need someone, you need a savior. My grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul utters those words, I am content. And by content, he means I have all that I need. Even if I'm faced with insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, you're going to be my God. You who suffered for me, bled for me, and died for me, you're going to forgive my sins. You're going to be with me in this life no matter what I face. You're going to strengthen me. You're going to help me. And at the end of days, you're going to raise me up and give me eternal life then, okay, I'm not happy I have to go through this, but I can do it. For I rest in your loving embrace. You will strengthen me and sustain me. I, I am content in you. So, so if Paul's going to hold the Thessalonians up as, as a model of example, after everything we've talked about, himself enduring suffering, then I think as Christians in the 21st century, we need to open our ears, and this should cause us to take note of how actually to endure our afflictions that we have in this life and the persecutions for the sake of the gospel. Cling to Christ and his promises alone. Yeah, those two two responses to affliction, I think, are key, that we would either abandon the promises of God, which is, as the psalmist says, utter foolishness, or we would cling all the more to the promises of God. And, and that's where the Lord wants us to go. That is his actual use of suffering, right? We, we know that God does not tempt us, that he would not have us fall away from him or to lose our faith. But he does use these sufferings to strengthen us, to, to draw us closer to him. And that's what's happened among the Thessalonians. And I love the way you brought out what Paul does with this in 2 Corinthians, because again, 2 Thessalonians is one of Paul's earliest letters, perhaps the second one he writes after 1 Thessalonians, of all of his letters that we're looking at as his, some of his earliest stuff, and to see how these same mm -hmm. themes come up again and again, and he develops them more and, and lays those same things out not just for the Thessalonians, but for these other churches, I think it's, it's just so instructive. Pastor Philip, I got just, a, just about a minute and a half here to, to kind of wrap some of these thoughts up before we take our break. Sure. So these very 
things are meant, as you said, to drive us closer to Christ, closer to his promises. And as we endure suffering and as we come to grips with the fact that we actually are by nature sinful and unclean, we're not the smartest people who ever lived, we're not the most capable who ever lived, and even if we are, it's still not good enough. We're not perfect as our Heavenly Father's perfect. We cannot fix our mess of sin, death, and the devil that plague us and weigh us down. Simply to cling to Jesus. You know what hymn he says this? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Right to the cross and to the cross alone. That is our strength. That is our comfort. That is our Lord who hung there, who was dead and is alive again for us. He has not abandoned us. Look to him because he will raise us up in glory on that last day. That will kind of set the stage, if you will, for what's going to happen here in verses 5 and following. And we will come back to that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, December 17th. We are studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Adam Philippek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, we looked at Paul's opening to this letter, the second letter that he writes to the Thessalonian Christians, and we noted how very similar it is in many respects to the first letter that he writes in its opening, the the boasting that he does here because of the steadfastness that they've had in sufferings, how that has led them to cling all the more to Christ. As Paul continues, though, he continues on, on this same theme in terms of suffering and affliction, but it does start to take a different turn than he took in First Thessalonians. He spent a lot more time in that letter laying out his, his past with them, the time he spent, their response to the word that was preached, and, and the good news. Now he, he turns a bit here in Second Thessalonians. So how does he move now in verses 5 and following into these themes of suffering and affliction that we were just looking at? Okay, so verses 5 through 10, then, are meant in the midst of this suffering that is continually ongoing, even from that first letter until the day that it reaches them and is read and preached in their ears. This persecution is still going on. So the the words of 5 through 10 are meant to comfort the Thessalonians, who are still in the midst of affliction and persecutions at the hand of their countrymen, as well as those imposters and false preachers who tell them that the day of the Lord has already arrived. These words of comfort, Paul's message to the Thessalonians, um, who were held up as examples of how to endure afflictions and persecutions for the sake of the gospel, his message is, is rather simple. His message is quite frankly summarized this way. God has not forgotten a single tear that you have cried in all of this. He loves you. He has engraved you on the palms of his hand. And the day coming when he will actually bring about the vengeance on those who are afflicting and persecuting you. They who persecuted you will be persecuted themselves and judged for it. But this will happen when he comes again in glory on the last day, the second coming, the day of the resurrection of all flesh. So these, these words, quite frankly, remind me of Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, when he lists a whole lot of different things in the Sermon on the Mount. In, in that laundry list of things that he says about being blessed, only two of those things listed are actually present tense, meaning they, they're happening right now. The rest of those things that are spoken are all future verbs. So what I mean by that is, let's kind of listen to Jesus' words here from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, present tense, 
is currently right now, right, is the kingdom of heaven. But then listen to all the future stuff here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And then the present tense again, blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So all that is to say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you by grace here and now in time, dear Christian. Yours is forgiveness. Yours is salvation. Yours is life, eternal life with God. Yours is Jesus. But we are also at the same time waiting for that final fulfillment, waiting for our Lord to, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, to judge the living and the dead, to bring the final fulfillment the promise, the hope of the future, that God has not forgotten about you. You will have the comfort you've longed for, dear Thessalonians, but it's something that is coming, not coming here and now in this age, but in the age to come when our Lord returns and is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Hmm. I never really noticed about the Beatitudes, and I don't know why, um, but that as you were pointing out the tenses, especially in the second half, right, that you've got this contrast of the the two present tenses that be, begin and end the Beatitudes. But the first half of the Beatitudes, those are all present tense. So blessed are, always blessed are, not blessed will be, but blessed are. And, and I think that that mm-hmm. highlights there what you're talking about, that even though these things are yet to come, still, dear Thessalonians, still, dear Christians, blessed are you now. That future reality brings blessing now. Even if you don't experience it right now, you still are blessed. You are, you are saved, you might even say, because of what Christ has done. And, and I, I, that contrast, I think, is, is very helpful. So to see this, and, and I appreciate you bringing that out here in, in verses 5 and following of Second Thessalonians 1, because it, it is a very, dark's maybe not the right word, but it's talking a lot about judgment. And yet to, to yeah. see that the Lord, or excuse me, Paul is is preaching this way for their comfort, knowing that that this is going to happen actually brings them comfort now. And yet, if if you're not on that side, to to use the language you used earlier, if if you receive the affliction now and despair of God's promises and take that foolish path that Psalm 14 describes, uh, then what Paul has to say here is not so comforting, not so happy. Paul, Paul's talking a lot about vengeance and, and fire. What do we see there, Pastor Philippic? Yeah, and so this is, this is the heart of it. This is the double reality, right? So he is, he is comforting, on the one hand, those who are undergoing persecution and clinging to the, word, to the, work and work of, the words and work of Christ. But he is comforting them to say that all of those who have rejected Christ and his word, who have proven themselves foolish um, and continual in their foolishness and their persecutions, there will come a day when those who are persecuting them will be judged, and the afflictors will be inflicted, and they will be inflicted with the judgment of God. So I think this also, among Lutheran ears sometimes, uh, kind of glosses over our, our ears, because we, we love law and gospel distinctions, but we forget Law and gospel distinctions, don't, they're in the text, but the word of the Lord is living and active. So the distinction is also made then in the hearer as it's preached. So you said this is word, these are words of comfort. Unless, of course, you're on the opposite side, then they're words of judgment. Right. I mean, this is, this is the whole heart of law and gospel. Which is it? Law or gospel? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a great thing. Do you hear? Do you believe? Or are you on, the, on this other side of the foolishness? And so he's comforting those who are persecuted that the fact that their, their persecution will end, their suffering will end, and God is the one who has vengeance. I mean, this is, this is Romans chapter 12 written all over it. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. I will repay, right? He's quoting Jeremiah on that verse, but it's all in Romans there with all the things going on, similar uh, themes and letters there as well as we had talked about earlier. But the vengeance is the Lord, and he will repay the affliction of those who afflict you. So in the midst of all of that... <laughs> You have this, this, this talk about um, 
the fire of God. And we'll go there in a minute, but I, I want to pick up a little bit on this kind of weird thought um, about inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of a weird phrase there, I think. Um, how do you obey the gospel? The gospel is God's message of salvation for you in Jesus Christ. How, how exactly do you obey that? Uh, It's kind of interesting because our translations tip their hand a little bit on this one as to um, those, uh, we'll say, theological presuppositions, right? What what the translators kind of believe as they go about this. They're doing the best they can. They're trying to choose the right words. But the word obey there is not actually obey. This is not like I must follow the commandments of God or or um, else I'm damned forever to hell, right? There's no chance of repentance or something like that. Sometimes we get that when we get the word obey. But actually in the Greek, this, this word obey ends up being hupokuosin uh, is the Greek word. But it <laughs> don't let that scare you away. Uh, the Greek word hupokuosin uh, comes from the word akuo, which actually just means this. It means either to listen, if it's an active, right? So I listen. Or in passively, it means to hear. So in the case of this particular um, phrase about those who, who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we're talking about here is a present active participle that I would really translate, not obey the gospel, but actually along these lines, I would translate it, this for something like this, those who do not know God and on those who do not continually listen to the gospel, hear the gospel, receive the gospel. That's a far different word uh, from obey, right? This echoes the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, where he says, blessed are those who akuo, right? Who hear the word of God, guard it. So at the heart of Christianity is, is in fact this distinction. There are those who fervently and continually and habitually Return to Jesus' feet to hear his word over and over and over again. You get this all over the place. Psalm 26, Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. You get this in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So this distinction um, between believer and unbeliever is made. So you could maybe translate that whole thing if it helps you in your mind, those who don't know God and and those who um, don't obey the gospel, as simply believers versus unbelievers on this, because this is really what we're talking about. Or, as I said, the foolish ones versus the ones who hear in faith, right? So don't, when you hear this, it's, it's, it's honestly the, those, who, those who hear the word, who listen to it continually, and those, those who reject it. So upon those who reject it, like I said, um, God is going to return, and that vengeance, that repayment of the affliction that he afflicts you with, it doesn't look pretty. Do you notice the words there? In flaming fire. That's what vengeance looks like. Judgment Day is oftentimes described in terms of fire, right? Second Peter chapter 3 talks about it this way. The heavens and earth will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed or melt away by fire. Mark chapter 9, 47 and 49, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then in Matthew chapter 25 again, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the vengeance. That's the repayment that will occur for those who are persecuting Christ's church, Christ and his church and refuse to repent and believe the gospel. They will be cast into the lake of fire, which is just simply often called hell. But I think that's a lot of the times, Pastor Apple, where we just stop, right? We stop with hell is fire, hell is burning, and you can't quench it, and the worm never ceases eating you, and you never die, and there's lots of pain, and there's lots of agony. And you'll notice my tone sort of downplays all of that for a reason, not because um, you don't need to hear it as, as strict and severe judgment. No, for the Thessalonians, uh, uh, that was a word of comfort. For those who are persecuting um, the Thessalonians, that a strict word of judgment. But I think your flaming fire in that verse 8 is actually more poignantly explained by verse 9. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, right? That, that whole thing, the whole reason of, 
of, of fire and suffering and pain and agony and worm eating you and you and it never dying and flame burning so hot that it just you wish that someone could come and cool your your tongue with a drop of water but but they can't right there is no goodness at all in hell it is devoid of the goodness of god because it's actually devoid of god it's god himself in that sense right um in 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 this way let me be clear on how it's devoid notice the words of matthew depart from me those are the words of matthew and notice the words of thessalonians the thessalonians to the thessalonians away from the presence of the lord Hell's do more than intense fire. Hell is actually described um, as a total and complete separation from God. That's hell. And when you are apart from God, there is only pain. There is only suffering. There is only sorrow. There is only affliction. There is only persecution. There is only agony. When you're with him, right? So that's hell. When you're with him, we talk about that nebulous concept of, of heaven sometimes. But when you're with him, and that's what heaven is, it's just simply to be with him. It's not floating on clouds. It's not getting wings and becoming an angel or something weird like that. Scripture never speaks that way. But it speaks of heaven as being with him. Come with me, you who are blessed by my Father, right? When you are with him, as Psalm 130 says, there is steadfast love and there is plentiful redemption. Let me just pause there for a minute. Sure. Yeah, there's so much to respond to. First, you're talking about fire. I, I, my mind goes back to the book of Amos. This was the the image that the Lord used over and over again in those first two chapters of Amos when he was describing the judgment that was coming upon these various people, including his own, so that the, the fire was, again, it was more than just the literal fire that, that would have come. And it's more, as you've been saying, than the fire that is there in hell. But but the real problem, the real the real thing that makes it hell is that is where God is not. That is where you depart from him. Uh, what, a, what an awful thing. You, you mentioned what, what Jesus says in Matthew. What an awful thing to hear from the Lord himself, depart from me. There's nothing worse than that. The fire's nothing compared to that. And, and to, to see that here, I mean, that, and that is the path of, of foolishness that leads apart from the Lord forever. And then, and just just briefly to to touch on what you were saying with the word "obey the gospel" as it's translated in English, I, I agree wholeheartedly with whole, wholeheartedly with you that that's just a bad English translation because it, it's really more of a problem with the with the English than anything else because the word "obey" means to follow a command, but the the right. word in Greek is is much more flexible than that. And you, you're right; it, it it hits it has to do with hearing and. And I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you mentioned this, and I just I missed it. But but hupakuo would be to to be under the hearing of something, right? The the preposition in Greek hupa means to be under, so to yeah. be under the hearing of something. So absolutely, do do that then, right? So what does it mean to be under the hearing of a command? Well, to be under the hearing of a command means to obey it, to do it. But how do you place yourself under the hearing of the gospel, which is not a command, but a promise? It doesn't mean to obey. It means, as you've said, to believe it. That's what it means to be under the hearing of a promise. And so, sure, the word means obey in, in many contexts because it has to do with a command, but here it has to do with a promise. So, so you're under that promise. That means you believe it. Uh, and so, uh, well, well, well said. Uh, Pastor Philip, I think you have, have a, a bit more, too, when it comes to this matter of, because, you know, we've been saying it in a very in the very negative light as Paul's talking here about being apart from the Lord. But this matter of being with the Lord is not just a theme that, that Paul has, but it's really a theme that that runs throughout Scripture. Man, that, that takes us back to the study we had in Exodus with the tabernacle. Tell us, give us more about that, about being with the Lord, that positive side. Yeah, I have been so blessed to be with you guys on KFUO through kind of all of those studies that focus intently on that, through the through Amos, through the tabernacle, uh, even back to Genesis, where we looked at this this poignant thing. But this is the heart of it, right? We were created to be with God. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. We were created with no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no death. Only if Adam scratched out his hand and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
in disobedience. And the Lord knew he was going to that because I use the word if, but the actual words are in the day that you eat of it. He knows this is going to happen. He knows that's what Adam is going to do and what his wife is going to do first. And in all of that comes then the consequences. All that fills God's creation with suffering, with sorrow, with sin, with death. It is all around us now. It is all in us, and we are to blame. And so much so that we hide from God. We hear God walking, and all of a sudden we start hiding from Him, right? This is, this is the, the whole idea that those who are holy, it, we, to draw this into the tabernacle language there that we talked about, those who are holy, those who are perfect, can stand in the presence of the living God. But we all know that we are not holy. We are not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Not even Isaiah who sees the train of God's robe high and lifted up in the temple, Isaiah 6, he says, woe to me. And when we get an Old Testament, woe, it's not like, oh, I had a bad day. Woe is me. No, it is death. Death to me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. But this, this is the justice of God, isn't it, that Paul talked about in chapter or in chapter 1, verse 5, right? The, the justice, the wages of that, the logical conclusion of unbelief and unrepentance and sin is death. But here's the mercy of God in the midst of all of this, that those who continually hear the word of the Lord, those who believe the gospel, find a Lord who is not only just, but in that justice is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So even after he kicks them out of the garden, the whole Old Testament hangs on that promise of Genesis 3.15. Where is this promised seed, this promised child, who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the, the promised land? Or more specifically, as we trace the theme through, so as to sort of short circuit, we only have so much time, who will give us back the presence of God. Right? And we trace that through the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is, is about cleansing, you know, sacrifices to keep God's presence in our midst. And God doesn't actually appear with his people and dwell with his people until the book of Exodus. And then only in the book of Exodus, he dwells in a tent. And that's not a permanent structure at all. So then what happens? Oh, man, we, we get to the promised land, but only the priest can still enter in there. The people of God can, can actually dwell in God's presence uh, it's, he's hidden behind a 45-foot curtain and only be accessed once a year by the high priest in the whole rite of cleansing and all the different things there, the, the day of atonement, all of those different things. Jesus, fast forward to the New Testament, it's no wonder why Jesus actually then says, or the angel Gabriel says, that this man will be called Jesus. He will, make, he will save his people from their sins, and he shall be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. There now, in the flesh of Jesus, is the new temple. It's God walking around out there to be able to be accessed once by everybody out there, right? This is what Jesus means when he says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they all laugh at him. It's taken 46 years, and he'll rebuild this in three days. But John notes that the temple he's talking about is his body, the very dwelling place of God. God puts his spirit in you. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and your body is a temple for God. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence among us. It's a constant theme all the way up to the day of, of resurrection, right? So post-ascension, Jesus says, or pre, you know, right before the resurrection and then after the resurrection and ascension, we're talking about how Jesus will come again to take us to be with him so that where we are there or where he is there, we may be also. Well, throughout all of this, Right, the promise of the Lord's return is, "Come with me, you who are blessed by my Father, here at the kingdom." Finally, Revelation 21, or Revelation 7, uh, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no suffering, sorrow, sin, mourning, death. The old has passed away; the new has come. So, at the end of the book of Revelation, finally, at long last, we are restored to the living presence of God. We are no longer afflicted with persecutions and calamities and fire and nakedness and the sword, cancer, old age, Parkinson's disease, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, blizzard, bullies, addictions, even death itself. We are free because we are in the presence of the living Christ. The sun shall not strike us by day and moon by night. All of this runs throughout, not just Thessalonians, and this isn't a comfort only for the Thessalonians who are persecuted, but it is a comfort for us in our sorrow that we may cling to 
the promises of Jesus and have life in his name. Pastor Philbeck, there's just under three minutes left here on the morning. We didn't really look too much at verses 11 and 12, so feel free to, to give us a couple quick points from there and, and just wrap the morning up for us. Sure. So if I have three minutes, then I'll conclude my thought what, uh, that I just made simply by saying this, that um, that whole old that whole thing can be summarized that we're talking about the presence of God. John chapter 20 summarizes it this way. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Luther summarizes it this way, the whole theme of Scripture, Jesus Christ. Right. The second, we'll talk about the second um, meaning to, or the second article, the meaning of that second article to the Apostles' Creed. He says, "Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with His holy precious blood, His innocent suffering, His bitter death, and that has a purpose, that I may be His own and live with Him in His kingdom." I tend to summarize it this way: the narrative of Scripture, God has joined you in the flesh, that you may join Him in your flesh in eternity. Yes is the hope of a Christian. This, and when we say hope, we don't mean oh, wishful thinking. No, we mean the certainty, our confidence. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And to this end, in verses 11 and following, this, this is what Paul prays for. That they, to this end, always are prayed that they may be worthy of their calling. Meaning, in all of what we've been talking about, that they may continually cling to the promises of God. And he who has begun this good work in them, this good work of belief, this good work of faith, he who has given them faith will see it through to the day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ by grace and grace alone in Jesus Christ. So this is is a beautiful end and sure and certain confidence for Christians that our Lord will bless them. He will keep them. He will continue to abide with them in word and sacrament to the very end of the age until he raises up in glory. And we are free at last because the Son has set us free. So we are free indeed. Pastor Adam Philippeck is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Philippeck, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.